Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. So a friend of mine sends me a text the other day and says, hey, man, I got a friend of mine uh, that I want you to meet. And uh, Mike Clausen was our future operations guy in uh, with RCT-5 in Fallujah in 2006. I was doing current ops, working in the COC at night, and so we did a lot of stuff. So Mike sends me this email. And he says, I've got this guy. He's an artillery guy. His name's Dave Armstrong. I want you to meet him. And uh, he even does a podcast. I said, okay. Because uh, Mike Clausen's a good dude. So when good dudes tell you they want to introduce you to a good dude, we all know the answer to that is, yeah, you bet. And Marine, right? Marine officer. So anyway, joining me this morning is... Dave Armstrong. So, Dave, first of all, good morning. How are you? Good morning. It's uh, just breaking into the afternoon here on the East Coast, so I appreciate you waking up a little bit early. Well, actually, I slept in. <laughs> um, I don't know. I go through these bouts where I have trouble sleeping, and I'll, my eyes will flutter open at about 3-something in the morning, 3 dot, dot, dot at, in the morning, and then I'll see. It doesn't take me long. I don't know how you are. I don't know how you sleep, but it doesn't take me long to know if I'm going to be able to go back to sleep. And today I thought, well, there's a chance. And so I looked at some news headlines and I tried to go back to sleep. And lo and behold, I did. And I wound up not getting out of bed till like 7.30, which is to me, you know, is doesn't happen hardly ever. And so I was, I'm, I'm actually excited today. So I slept in. And, uh, yeah, so I didn't even get up early. Yeah. So how about well, that? I'll tell you, here, here's – I'll tell you what that whole thing about waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning is called. It's called being a 50-year-old guy. (laughs) (laughs) Every single one of my friends I talk to tell me that they wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I do the same thing. I I grab the Kindle and I just sleep until it makes me go to sleep. And sometimes I read for an hour. Sometimes I read for five minutes. But, yeah. Yeah, you know, and people ask me, well, well, God, you have to sleep more than that. I said, you know what, but I don't lay in bed and thrash around and do all that. I mean, if I – and I know if if I can't get to sleep, I wake up and I take a shower and I start my work day, and then yeah. at some point later, um, normally in, in the in the afternoon, I'll I'll take it out, uh, but I don't I don't sweat it, I don't have conniption fits because I didn't sleep for seven hours, because uh, I hardly ever do that, and I certainly don't sleep through the night. And in fact, when the mother of all you know crazy things happens in my life and I do sleep through the night, I wake up and I look around. I'm like. Did I just sleep like seven hours? Like, yeah. what What just happened? Is the end of the world near? Because if I think it is, because um, <laughs> it rarely happens. But but again, yeah. you know. But again, I, I don't uh, I don't stress over that. And uh, I know just uh, at some point later on in the day that I'll probably take a nap for about an hour, and then I'm I'm, I'm good. So 
Yeah. But I well, love yeah, I also the my... other thing. The other thing, Dave, I also love having friends that don't sleep because you could text them anytime in the middle of the night and they answer. Hey, man, what's yeah. up? Hey, what are you doing? Like nothing. Staring at my ceiling right now. Yeah. But, well, I, you know, I appreciate Mike introducing us for, for Mike, for someone like Mike Clausen to call me a good dude is a, is a huge compliment because, as you know, he's one of the greatest of all dudes. Um, and so I appreciate him thinking of connecting us because it's been fun getting to, to know you. And I've been listening to your podcast for a long time. So it's actually kind of funny to go from listening to you, you know, passively to actually having a conversation with you. The, uh, Mike Clausen looks like Val Kil- Kilmer yeah. in the movie Top Gun in the volleyball game. That's what Mike Clausen looks like. Not, not like Val Kilmer today, mercifully for Mike. Right. Right, but Val Kilmer in the volleyball game, if you you'd see Mike Clausen, like, is that Val Kilmer? Did Val Kilmer join the Marine Corps? Like, no, that's Mike Clausen. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, Mike was our uh, Mike was our uh, future ops guy, and uh, and and, uh, and did uh, he's did did great great things. Uh, yeah. We were in Fallujah with uh, at the time Colonel Larry Nicholson, who had gone to greater things, and uh, so. Let's talk about you. I mean, you have to sure. pass the sniff test, right? Yeah. Um, even more so because you're an artillery officer. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. um, born and raised where? So, I was born and raised in New Jersey, but I like to say that I split my time between New Jersey and South Carolina. So, I really don't have a home in either state. Um, you wanna, so, technically, you born ex- and raised in New Jersey, like high school and stuff. But I spent every summer of my life growing up down in South Carolina for the summers. So I, so what, that's how I ended up going to school down there. What was that about? What was summer, your just family stuff down there every summer? Yeah. So, um, my folks at some point, my, my uncle was a career Marine. He was an Amtracker. As a matter of fact, he was one of the, the designers of the, uh, P seven variant that we're still using. Okay. And, um, he was a career 30 year Marine. And, um, at some point he had rotated through, the Beaufort Paris Island area. My parents went down to visit him, fell in love with the low country of South Carolina and came back from a visit and said, we're going to figure out a way to buy a small place down there to spend summers. So my mom was a, a school, she worked in, she was a school nurse. So she had school teacher hours. So she packed up the car when school let out and drove the whole family down. And my dad flew down every two or three weeks to hang out with us for a week. And, uh, when summer was over and went back to school, we packed the car back up and went to New Jersey. I did that for every single summer as long as I can remember until I started college. So I went to the University of South Carolina. Oh, I'm, really? Yeah. yeah. I'm a huge Gamecock fan. Right. Um, and uh, it, it's great. I, I loved going to school there. It's the only place that you can publicly yell the word cock and nobody <laughs> will look funny at you. Uh, and I uh, did ROTC there. I liked my summer friends more than my high school friends, so I really wanted to go to school down south. Um, had a really interesting time in in college, ROTC, graduated, and, you know, five days later was checking into TBS in 1990. So you, the, the Marine Corps gets our, on your radar from at a young age because of your uncle? And Top Gun. What? Yeah. So I don't, when did Top Gun come out? Like 85 or whatever it was? I'm not sure. And so I always wanted to – well, I was always fascinated with the military. Okay. You know, would, would read all the Vietnam books, everything that we've all read. So I, was, I always had an interest in the military. 
but I was not what you would call a well-behaved high school student, nor did I have good grades. And my uncle said to my mom at one point, my uncle in the mid eighties was the battalion commander of third track battalion. And he said to my mom, why don't you have David come out here for spring break and I'll drag him around the Marine Corps base and see if we could pique his interest in the Marine Corps. So I went out with him and like, splashed a track into the basin down there in Del Mar. And I actually went out on a field operation as a sophomore or junior in high school. He stuck me on an Amtrak with some poor first lieutenant. I mean, could you imagine this first lieutenant being like, hey, you're going to take this 15-year-old kid who's the nephew of the battalion commander out on this field exercise. I mean, that poor guy. (laughs) (laughs) I went out. Just Uh, just a really quick story. This This is back when they first invented the night vision goggles. It was like the things with the two tubes that came out, like R2-D2 looking things, you know, like something out of Star Wars. And my uncle gave me a set and he's like, don't you dare lose these. There was probably like five in the whole battalion at that point. And I'm in this Amtrak, I'm in a troop commander hatch and we're driving down. And if you're, if you've been on Pendleton, you know exactly what I'm talking about where they drive the Amtraks down between the five and the beach. And you know, there's those track until you get to the point where you can go underneath the highway through the bridge. And that's how all they went. If you've ever driven down five, the five, you've seen the Amtraks driving up and down. We're doing this at night and the, the headlights from the, cars coming down I-5 were washing out whatever night vision system they had back in the 80s and the Amtrak and the driver couldn't see and they were stopping. They were having all these problems. And the the vehicle crewman says, hey, we're going to hold you by the ankles and you're going to hang out the Amtrak down the left-hand side of the Amtrak with those night vision goggles that you have. And you're going to give us commands left and right to keep us on this trail so we can keep going because nobody can see anything. And then everybody followed that Amtrak. So here I am. I'm 15 years old and being held out the side of an Amtrak by my ankles. I'm just having the greatest time in the world. That was when I was like, okay, I could see myself doing this. And then Top Gun came along and I was like, "Mm, I want to be a fighter pilot, right? Like everyone else who saw Top Gun. So I joined ROTC with the idea of becoming a fighter pilot and I ended up as a artilleryman. (laughs) Of course, the natural career path. Yeah, right, the, um, right. So how do you how do you ultimately select uh, the artillery branch as your, uh, or did you did you select it? Did they select you? How did how did you become an artilleryman? So we all remember the quality spread at TBS. So so I gave up on the flight contract thing. I had a flight contract. I actually voluntarily gave it up. I had a friend of mine killed in a midair collision when he was at Navy Flight School, and that just that ended it for me. So I went to TBS as a just like we all anybody without a law or flight contract. I went in like that. And I was always really interested in being an Amtracker just because of my uncle and that experience I had when I was a kid. Of course. But there's only a couple of track slots. And I found myself in the middle of TBS trending towards the bottom of the second third. And I was like, all right, we all know what happens to people who are in the bottom of any third. So I started to have to get creative with my testing to sink down in the rankings to get to the top of the third third, which <laughs> I was successful at and got my ass chewed really bad by my company commander. And because uh, he knew what I was doing. I ended up like second in the third third. There were no track slots. So my company commander came to me and actually sat me down and said, I know you want to be an Amtracker. I know you have family who's been an Amtracker. You're not going to be an Amtracker. 
you're going to be an artillery officer. And here's why. And just sat me down and said, this is why I think you're perfect for the community. And this is in the best interest of the Marine Corps. And you know what? He was right. It was the perfect MOS for me. Wow. Uh, yeah. So you don't, you don't, hey, still. you don't hear that story very often, right? You hear, you hear a whole lot of other ones, but you don't hear that one. Right. Well, I mean, there's this saying, you know, if, if you talk to Dave Armstrong, there's a story there always is. You know? <laughs> sort of like my probably should go on my gravestone. There you go. What about? Uh, well, let me tell you, I want I, that to go on my gravestone. Just I, I think what you if you're smart, right, what you'll do is you'll have a solar, you know, powered uh, video screen on your gravestone. Right. That has a sensor in front of it. And yeah. when somebody comes in, passes in front of your gr- gravestone, the screen comes on and Dave Armstrong from his grave. Hey, that's right. As long as you're here, got a couple of thoughts for you today, right? <laughs> Since I have your attention, right? <laughs> exactly. Thanks for coming. First of all, thanks for coming. Right. right. If you could do me a favor to make sure that you know all the grass is cut around me, I'd appreciate that because nobody wants to look at a nasty gravestone. Now, right. now that now that I have you engaged, let me give you a couple of thoughts for the day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Here my philosophy on life. There you go. Tell us. Uh, tell us about your. Give us a high. Uh, yeah. Give us the high, the thumbnail of uh, and the high marks of your uh, of your Marine Corps career. Sure, uh, TBS Fort Sill ended up going to Airborne School after Fort Sill because uh-huh. Gulf War uh-huh. was winding down and there were no units to go to, and they had all these school slots. They didn't know what to do with people, so half my artillery class went to Fort Benning. Checked into Five Eleven about it, when they were still in Twenty Nine Palms, so nineteen ninety fall. Uh, I'm sorry, spring of ninety one, and. Um, they had just come back from Desert Storm. They were a self-propelled battalion. I joined Sierra Battery 511, which was an 09 battery in 511 during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Um, served about two years in 511 in your typical battery, you know, lieutenant jobs. And then in the course of that, ended up deploying to Somalia with 311, TAD to 311, went to Somalia, worked with... One seven third LAR out of the stadium and three eleven a little bit out of the airfield. Came back from that and got orders to first Anglico, which back then was the career killer for an artillery officer, as it was known. But at that point, I was like, "Well, what career? This sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to go do it." Spent the next three years or so at first Anglico, did some deployments. Really enjoyed that command, and then got out. Of the Marines, resigned my commission. I was a regular commission, so I, I but I resigned after six or seven years. Joined the reserves because I had been accepted back to graduate school at the University of South Carolina for my MBA, and then I actually retrained as an 1802 tanker. So I went to Fort Sill, uh, Fort Knox for a year. I did basic course and the advanced course back to back. Served in the reserves in a tank uh, unit until I graduated from graduate school, and then moved on and basically dropped out of the reserves. Came back into the reserves right after 9-11 and spent the rest of my career in the reserves. Because I was a tanker, I was at um, 4th LAR, Delta Company 4th LAR in Quantico. Then I was down at 4th Anglico in West Palm Beach. Had a battery command at Mike Battery 314 at Chattanooga, Tennessee, back down to 4th Anglico. And then by the time I was a lieutenant colonel, I finished up my career in the Division of Public Affairs when Paul Kennedy had it. And I worked in an IMADET there. I think you and Paul, you you and Paul Kennedy are peers, right? You must be. No, must we're, be no, no, no. I am his mentor, right? I am his godfather, 
okay? okay. But we are not peers. He is a subordinate of mine. Okay. Okay. Well, just, well thank just, you for thank, just, I really appreciate just, talking that. Just for the record, and he knows that, <laughs> right. right? He knows that I would be Vito Corleone. He would be Michael Corleone, right? Um, but no, we are not peers, right? There's a hierarchy there, and we still observe that. Okay. Well, I do. I do remember <laughs> his name being at TBS when I was there as one of the instructors. That's why I thought maybe. Yeah. No. He and I. That's that's where he and I meet. Um, okay. He shows up as a. Uh, senior first lieutenant getting ready to be a captain and he walks out I'm teaching a comp- half of a company out at old combat town and he walks out and he says are you Mac and I said yeah and he said I'm Paul Kennedy he said uh, he said I'm I'm supposed to help you and we've yeah. been we've been great friends uh, we're battle buddies times two he was the battalion commander of 2-4 in Ramadi in 2004 when I was working for the division and uh so we're there together then, and then uh, we were both in Afghanistan at the same time. I was with RCT-1. We were both in Helmand. He had the northern part of the battle space, and we had the southern part of the battle space. So, uh, okay. yeah, no, he and I are great friends. He had, so most people that I came across in the reserves had a tough time placing me when I saw them because the part of that story was after after graduate school and I started my civilian career, I literally resigned from the reserves. So I have this seven year chunk of broken time. And then after nine 11, I petitioned the Marine Corps to reappoint my, my commission, which they did, but they brought me back in as a captain with no time and grade, which was perfect because in the reserves back then as a captain, you were basically a platoon commander. So I was like, great, I'm going to get to do all the fun stuff again until I became a battery commander. And my battalion commander was somebody who was a second lieutenant when I was a captain. And now he's my battalion commander. So at that point it wasn't <laughs> funny anymore. Right. But, uh, yeah, so I was basically referred to as the Archibald Henderson of the United States Marine Corps artillery community. Um, so I, 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 would, I, I called myself the, the GOM, the grand old major of the Marine Corps at the time, right? I had, I mean, I had guys I taught that were peers of mine, guys I taught at IOC uh, that yeah. were, I served as, with as peers. And they loved, but let me tell you, it was an absolutely fantastic experience. Right. Yeah, it was serving with them because at IOC we produced a really, really, really good lieutenants, and I'm I'm really proud of the work that we did there, and uh, and then getting a chance to work with guys like Roger Turner, J.J. Carroll, John Myrna. Uh, we did Kern oh yeah, Ops. John Myrna, sure. Yeah, we did we did Kern Ops together in uh, in Ramadi for the division, and and these guys were my students. It was an absolutely awesome experience. Yeah, that's great. I I have lost track of John Myrna. He was we were around the same peer group. I haven't I haven't seen him since he had that horrible motorcycle accident back when he was like a first lieutenant or a captain, and yeah. he was at the drill field down in San Diego. Yeah, I went um, I went and saw him in the hospital. Uh, did you? Yeah, yeah that was his, awful. But, you know, no, one of my favorite lieutenants of all time, John Myrna, played yeah. fo- played football at Florida State. Comes up to me at IOC, and I can't remember we were talking sports or something. And I don't know. I must have said something about Deion Sanders. And he came up to me and he says he played with Deion Sanders at Florida State. And he said, if you were teammates with Deion Sanders, he said you'd love him. And yeah. I said, don't even go there with me. <laughs> and he said, he said, no, sir. He said, he's a great guy. He's a great teammate. I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, how do you know that? He said, I played with him at Florida State. Wow. And – um. Uh, so yeah, he's one of my. Favorites. I'm going to connect you offline for this because 
there is a big movement underway right now to get like two or three of the IOC classes from my generation are all getting together for a big 30 year reunion or something down in New Orleans. There is something going on. A couple of my friends are talking about it. I'll bet you the IOC instructors from that time showing up at that would probably be a pretty damn good time. It'd be hilarious. They used to, yeah. they, they kept books of quotes that shit we would say. And I would yeah. tell you this, what made, um, IOC the course that it was, was the fact that whoever was the director over at IOC when I was there, John Kelly, when I was at the base school, it was John Kelly. Yeah. He, they got to pick among, I don't know how many captains were, are at the basic school at any given time at the time, but there were probably 25 to 30 in the instructional group, and there was, you know, five in every company that was on deck. So that's like, what, 50-plus mm-hmm. captains? And out of that, you got to pick, you know, four or five a year to come over. And, you know, I mean, you know, when I was there, you know, Jody Osterman gets out as a three-star. Stacy Clarity is a three-star, was mm-hmm. there. Um, Lou Craparata, who's a three-star, was there. Dave Furness, three-star. Paul Kennedy, right, a host of colonels. And so what made IOC was, you know, the, the, the talented teachers and officers and leaders and guys with big personalities that made the course vibrant in what it was. So Right. Yeah, no, and, and let me tell you, and, and – and and you only got there if you really loved lieutenants because not everybody da, did and and enjoyed teaching them and all of that and we did we loved lieutenants so yeah are yeah. you uh, are you connected at all anymore with how IOC is run now or no, is, no uh, I don't know I don't know anybody there and uh, or or whatnot so I've I've lost touch with that so yeah yeah so no but I would uh, yeah if you could connect me I would I mean I. I'll definitely if I could that. get yeah. I could get there because let me tell you those guys were great guys the stories were hilarious but you know the vast majority of them have gone on to do great things in life and so oh, it's yeah. a, whenever you get together it's always amazing you know you knew them right out of college uh, when they were looking at this big thing called the you know Fleet Marine Force and uh, but you could see their talent um, the the human capital that walked through the door uh, to be Marine officers was pretty always. Um, Always really, really impressive, intellectually yeah. impressive, physically impressive, and they were fired up to go do great things. And so, I mean, it, it's it was the per, if you love to teach and 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 lead, it was a perfect environment to do it. And yeah. I, I was really fortunate. and look, some of those lieutenants that you taught have gone on to become general officers, right? Matt Trollinger, right? right. Uh, Heritage, right? Uh, no, it's funny when they come Mike up. Mike Martin, Dave Bellin's a three star, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's hilarious. They come up yeah. to you and they start quoting you. You're like, dude, you need to forget that, okay? No, right. I thought it was hilarious, man. It still yeah. is. Right. So, um, wow. wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So those guys all, you know, they're they're carrying on the legacy of the court at the general officer level. I mean, they're the institution now, right? Yeah. So don't say, don't screw it up. The, right. um, so hey, conti- I didn't mean to interrupt. So continue yeah, so on. Yeah, that was it. Um, you, you come back in? Yeah. So, I, okay. So I came back in and that's when I did – uh, LAR, Anglico, uh, it, it was great. I really never, in the reserves, right, you've got 4th Marine Division and you're doing the one week in a month, two weeks in the summer. I never left the 4th Marine Division. So an active duty guy will slap me across the face for saying this, but I never left the fleet. I'm using my air quotes here, right? I was always in an operational unit my entire 
you know, eight, 18 out of my 20 years, I was attached to a, you know, drilling unit that was going out to the field and doing Marine stuff. Uh, my only time that I spent in a desk job was the last two years at the, uh, I'm a debt with the division of public affairs, which was great. Um, and then, and then I retired, I ended up with some knee injuries that just, I just couldn't come back from. So I retired before I had battalion command, which was a shame, but I would have liked to have done that. I would have liked to have been a battalion commander in the artillery community. I would have enjoyed that. But, uh, and then, you know, I don't know how this happened, Mike, but, um, I was asked to join the board of the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, which is kind of synonymous with the museum. And so that's my attachment with the Marine Corps right now. Um, I'm really active in. So, in so hold on, you, you skipped a step. So you get out of the Marine Corps or, or when you got off active duty, what did you do professionally? Oh, sorry. Thanks. Um, went back to graduate school, got my MBA, and then I, wor- I started working in the investment management field. And I worked for a couple of investment banks up in New York City. And then through some mergers between big banks, um, I ended up at a bank called Credit Suisse First Boston. It's just called Credit Suisse now. And they opened up an office here in Washington, D.C. And they asked me if I wanted to come be one of the plank holders, if you will, of this new office. So I did that. And then they closed the office two years later, and I ended up moving to another firm. And then I spent six years working there until I decided that I had had enough um, of working for people who I thought were dumber than I was. And I took my entire team and started my own company in 2008, May of 2008, right, which is perfect timing for a finance company to get started, like, you know, right into the teeth of the financial crisis. But, you know, we made it. And uh, so I've, I've been running my own company called Monument Wealth Management here in Alexandria, Virginia, essentially D.C. And that's my career. So that's what I do for a living is uh, I run a firm that, you know, does financial planning, wealth management for people, all, all mom and dad kind of people, not 401ks or foundations or endowments. It's just Mr. Okay. and Mrs. Smith. So at, so at the retail level, that's what you mm-hmm. do. Correct. Got it. Correct. Got it. Got it. Got it. So you do that, and you find your way to the Heritage Foundation board. Um, uh, let's talk about that. Uh, sure. They do uh, a lot of great work. Um, what attracted you? So they approach you. What was that conversation like? They did. I got a call out of the blue from somebody that said, um, somebody has given us your name as somebody we should interview for an open position on the board. Um, we're looking for, you know, obviously a former Marine. Um, I think it helped that I was in the Washington DC area, not a prerequisite, but they had an opening on their investment committee that manages the assets of the foundation. And they wanted to have somebody who had some technical skills and experience in investment management to come in and help, you know, steward the investment committee. Uh, I'm not the chairman, but, um, you know, I, I help. I'm one of three people on the investment committee right now. Uh, a retired Marine who spent his entire career in the intelligence community and then uh, retired General Tom Waldhauser. And so the three of us are on the investment committee. And um, I interviewed with them. I had to fly out. <clears throat> I had to do a couple of in-person interviews with people who had been on the foundation for a long time. And like any good foundation they have um term limits essentially you you can only serve three consecutive three-year terms on the board before you have to leave 
And so there's always openings that are coming up. So every year they're interviewing two or three people to join the board. And I joined the same year General Waldhauser did. So I, I had, I, I have no idea why they would want me on. It's kind of like, okay, I'm joining the same year. Well, they, they uh, do need, they, they do need somebody that has like some real world financial skills. Right. I mean, so that was really it. Yeah. yeah if I so, didn't have that. They would have never given me a second look. Well, right? I mean, thank God you do. I mean, it is helpful when people are discussing, I'll give you an example. I get elected to the city council of a town of about 70,000 people. And I get, um, they, people knew I'd, I, I had a very limited right um, amount of time working for Merrill Lynch. And, but it, I mean, it wasn't my, it wasn't my, you know, resume. And so they said, well, he should be on the finance committee and then he should be on the pension sub, subcommittee. So I'm sitting in the pension subcommittee meeting and I won't, I won't say who, but he was like, he was a police representative. In the middle of the meeting, he pulls out his money magazine and he opens it up and he says, well, it says here. And I just sat there and I went, good God, this is not what we're doing, right? We're pulling, right, investment recommendations to our advisor out of money, this month's money magazine, right? And so it helps, right? It helps to have people who understand it a little bit to uh, ward those kind of things off. So, uh, so, well, that explains it. Talk to me about uh, the work you guys uh, have done. You and I, when we were talking the other day, used a term that I use, right? I thought I invented it, uh, but maybe not. Uh, I invented it for me, but I call the National Museum of the Marine Corps the Cathedral of the Marine Corps. Yeah. And it's my Catholicism bleeding through. When you see it at night from I-95, it absolutely right connotes uh, a cathedral. When you're inside of it, uh, my son, who will get married next week in, uh, in Annapolis, he was commissioned uh, in, uh, in the rotunda of the, uh, of the museum. And that version of the national anthem that I play at the start of the program is, was recorded on somebody's iPad that day. That is that is the ambient audio of them singing that day. Uh, the, the the commissioning officer was one of my best friends, my battle buddy times three, who I met at the basic school in IOC, and that is uh, uh, Major General Dave Furness. Uh, and it was in this cathedral that this event happened. And, um, and then the more you, time you spend been there you know you see little things that um, that move you uh, the thing I was most excited to see the first time I went were the flags that went up on Iwo Jima which one mm-hmm. would be di- on display and, and you at the time they had this thing where you, you went into this room and they played the audio of you know landing waves you know whiskey you know x-ray blah 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 blah, blah and Yankee report to you know whatever um, and then they these then you were in an Amtrak. You these doors open. You go into the simulated Amtrak, and they play video of going to the beach. And then at the end of it, this these doors open like an Amtrak ramp going down. And and in front of you was one of the two flags that that flew atop Mount Suribachi. And so you then you go back to it because it's such an incredible place from the bricks that surround it that have unit 
names on it that have names of like someday there'll be a name there'll be a brick with my name on it and both my son's names on it um as families have sought to become you know sponsors and and want to be a part of it because it's such a it's such a beautiful place and then the more you explore it you find things in there that uh, you can't shake and one of the things it's almost like a little shrine for me. I mean, I think it should have candles in front of it, right? My my inner Catholic is telling me that. <laughs> but it is a f- painting of a World War One gunnery sergeant by the name of Fred Stockman, I think is his name. And um, I believe he's with 5th Marines. I can't remember. Uh, I should read his Medal of Honor citation, but I won't. But what Fred Stockman does is during a gas attack, he goes over to tend to the wounded who are laying on stretchers as gas, mustard gas, envelops them. He removes his gas mask to give to a wounded Marine and dies. Uh, yeah. And you read I, that, you read that, and, you know, you just think, you know, you, you, you know part of Marine Corps is, you know, you read these things. You know where do we where do we find such men and women? And you read that he takes his gas mask off, knowing with certainty that he will die. And you walk in his footsteps. So you find these shrines there mm-hmm. that then you feel compelled to revisit, right? To go up and say hello to Gunnery Sergeant Stockman, and it's just this incredible place. And so I can't even imagine how excited you were uh, to be asked to be in some way, shape, or form part of that. I mean, first of all, it is such a massive honor to be involved with our cathedral, right? Because that, like you said, that's what it is. Um, every single time I walk into that museum, there there is a moment where I feel like I have to collect myself just a little bit, Um because it is such a powerful, it, it's fantastic, and then it's also powerful. Um, and I like to joke that if you had told me 20 years ago that the Marine Corps was going to start a museum, I would have closed my eyes and envisioned a rusty Quonson hut with a you know, rusted Amtrak in front of it, and that would have been our museum. I mean, no way. This is, this is a world-class museum. In fact, in 2020, it was ranked the best history museum by U.S. News. And that's in competition wait, 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 wait. with say, every single. Hold on, say that again. Yeah. Who who did this ranking? U.S. News. U.S. News and World Report. That magazine. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The number one his because let me tell you, if you did, and 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 <laughs> just so you know, the reason Dave says that is because if you go to see the little museums that we have at, at, at my most familiar with the ones at Pendleton, right. They're essentially an old railroad warehouse or an old supply warehouse with rusting equipment that's been continually repainted over the years uh, on it with some placards out in front of it and some little chains around it so you're not supposed to go touch it. That's what you'll find. And so he's not joking when he says that. And so, yeah, this thing when you see like, yeah, what's it going to be? And... um, I remember having General Christmas on, uh, I don't know, within the last couple of years, I think, and maybe longer. 
uh, I can't believe I, this is like into the sixth year of me doing All Marine Radio. But I asked him, I said, sir, when, when we started talking about the museum, and he said, I asked him, I said, did you ever envision, and I didn't even get finished the question, and he says, no, no, yeah. absolutely not. We had an idea of what we wanted to be, and then as we saw more and more, oh, as we saw, that's all right, as we saw, as we saw more and more of hey. the art that um, that was scattered around the Marine Corps, the different things that we had from the flags, right, to different um, incredible artifacts of Marine Corps history, you know, we got excited about that. But what it has become and then the impact and then the second and third order effects of more Sit. memorabilia pouring in from all corners Sit. of Marines who say this needs to be in the Marine Corps has been astounding. So he said, you know, long answer short, there's no way we had any idea that it would turn into this, this sacred, you know, you know, this, this, the most holy of holies in the, in the Marine Corps is what it's turned into. And yeah. he said, no way. And, you know, one of the interesting statistics about it is that 80% of everything that the museum has is in storage and not even on display. That's crazy. That's how much stuff they have. It's crazy. But so there's essentially two – so some history for everybody listening um, because you just think about, OK, it's the Marine Corps Museum. Well, it's the National Museum of the Marine Corps. That's the official term. That – and then there's there's the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, okay, which is which is different. So, the National Museum of the Marine Corps is a public-private partnership between the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation and the United States Marine Corps. So together, we have the museum. So, the Heritage Foundation, their mission is to preserve and promulgate the history, traditions, and culture of the United States Marine Corps, and to educate all Americans in its virtues. Okay, That is the mission statement of the Heritage Foundation. So what the Heritage Foundation did, they raised the money to build the building. Okay, It is the Marine Corps' responsibility to build out the exhibits. So there's two pe- there's two groups working together on the museum. So that that is an interesting relationship that takes place because the Marine Corps has money that goes into creating things and then the Heritage Foundation has money that goes into things. So we built the building and then it's the Marine Corps that builds out all of the exhibits, which is uh it's a it's an important distinction. Um, so you're the but, custodians of the building, and they're con- the cust- custodian of the content inside the building. Correct. Okay. Correct. So uh, let's use now the um, the the current uh, exhibits that are being built. Okay. So basically, in 2006, the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation led this big capital campaign to build the museum. And the the museum was opened in 2006. Then they built the first galleries. And the 
those galleries, which are the ones that you've been through, are part of what is called legacy walk. And so there is the galleries cover everything from the Revolutionary War through the Vietnam War, and then it just kind of stops. The third and final phase, the foundation went out and raised more money to go in and construct the Marine Corps, the museum's final phase. And this is so the Heritage Foundation created the space for the galleries, which will honor the Marines who served after the Vietnam War through today. That space is built, and now the Marine Corps is building the actual exhibits in that space. And that's going to take you from Vietnam all the way through today's wars. So it'll have Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you know, Grenada, Somalia, everything all through OIF, OEF. Um, and it's been incredible because those extensions were part of the museum's original plan to do uh, and, and have essentially doubled the museum's footprint since it first since it first opened. Um, and, and of course, these projects are only made possible with supportive donors. So now where are we with this final phase? Well, the, the space well, has been Hold on, hold on. Let me ask you. you. You said final phase. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no way that that thing's done developing, right? I don't know who's got the next next plans for it, but is there room on that campus for another building for this thing to, to, to grow? Either, I think there are either up or sideways yeah. or something. So I, I think there are plans to there are drawings that would facilitate expanding it. But as it stands right now, as I understand it, this is the final phase of the initial plan of building the museum. Got it. So so the museum has been now whether they do additions and everything else. I think that there's probably ideas for that. Um not something that I am involved with right. uh, on Got the it. board. Got it. Got it. Um, no, I, again, I just when you see something that good, yeah, right, and then you hear something like eighty percent of what they have is not on display. You know, as Marines, what are we saying? It's like, well, what the hell, man? Let's get it on display. Like, what are we doing? Right. Right. So that's that's a great segue into some of the other things that the Heritage Foundation is doing. So we have actually taken now now we're looking at programs to take the Marine Corps Museum and everything that it does and take it outside the walls. So there we now have um, traveling displays of Marine Corps Museum artifacts that are going around the country right now. Wow. And people can see them. So right right now, the, the current. Um, the current work is in um, Tucson, Arizona, or uh, sorry, New Mexico. Anyway, um, they're going around and basically they, they have tractor trailers and they're carrying stuff around and they're just, they're doing this great job of, of getting the other stuff out there for these traveling exhibits that will go all around the country and just plop down in towns for people to be able to experience a little bit of what the Marine Corps Museum is like. You know, the first um, entity that I saw do that was the moving Vietnam Wall. 
that came when I was living in North Dakota, um, it comes to the city that I lived in, Grand Forks, North Dakota. And I want to say it was there for two weeks. And I will tell you what, um, the impact of that visit, I mean, there were families who had um, who had sons that were on that wall who had never been to D.C. to visit it. And they came down and, oh, my God. And then I'm talking about it, doing an interview with the guy who was the the city attorney. Wow. His, his name is Howard Swanson. And I asked him if he had been, and he said, um, yes, he said, I've been. And then he said, my oldest brother's on that wall. Wow. I have no idea. I have no idea, right? And, I mean, I... I was just silent for a second, and I said, do you care to talk about it? And he said, yeah. He said, well, my brother was, you know, 11 years older than me, so he was 20, right? I was nine, and he was this bigger-than-life symbol than me. He was a great guy. He was a great athlete. He's, you know, we farmed in rural Minnesota. You know, he tells us this story, this loving story, you know, that a little brother would tell a uh, of his older brother. And then his older brother was killed in Vietnam. Wow. And he said, yeah. He said, so he said it's an emotional thing for us. And so, but it was this huge event in the community. It was a huge event in the community. And so that's the first time I ever saw um, a, I think they call it the moving Vietnam Wall. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar. Is what they call I've, it. I've and, heard that. Right. And so, so, I mean, and it's really cool because you're, you're taking history, right, to people who would never see it otherwise. Right. And so, I mean, I, I mean, hats off, the, man. That's awesome. How, it's and, great. And so, and, what is, so what does it look like? Are they vans? Is it set up in a venue? How, can you explain to us what it is? Sure. So right now, the it is it's about thirty-two paintings and a couple of sculptures that they've put in. in and now. You don't just take a bunch of paintings, a couple sculptures, ratchet strap them to the inside of a U-Haul van and take them anywhere, right? Like this is expensive. You're building custom built crates for these things to travel in. It's a valuable things. So right now it is out um, – this uh, traveling art show, let's call it, is in um, Tucson, Arizona at the Pima Air and Space Museum. It's there right now and then it will next go to the Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas – uh, in September, and I think it's going to stay there through the end of this year. So it'll stay in Fredericksburg, Texas until 2022. And then after that, there are plans to have a travel to Utah and Ohio before coming back to Texas again. And so this is the first time that we've done this. So there's there's definitely plans in the works um, in the future to create a, lo- a much larger traveling exhibit to bring the more of the Marine Corps Museum experience to those who can't make it to the two hour cathedral here in, in Kiwanico, Virginia. Um, so this is the first time we've, th- we've done it. And this is really, when I say we, let me, let me clarify that. This is, uh, Jim Lukeman, general retired major general, Jim Lukeman who's the CEO of the Marine Corps heritage foundation. This is him and his staff that are doing this, which is fantastic. Uh, and this is again, you know, made possible because of a lot of the donations that we get, 
which and just incredible the generosity that Marines uh, have made towards the museum. But this is an exciting thing, and I think the plan is to only have it get bigger and bigger because you know, one, one of the things that's really special about the Heritage Foundation and what we're doing is we do a lot more than just run the museum, right? So it, we, as a foundation, we're also trying to inspire a greater understanding and appreciation of the Marine Corps through music and art and journalism, writing, um, scholarly research. We, we sponsor education programs. So for example, every year we host an annual awards program and that recognizes the outstanding depictions of Marines in journalism in art, in photography, in writing. And we have this huge award. It's a black tie thing. Um, the Leatherneck Gallery, that's the – when you walk in, you said your son got commissioned. They put tables in there. It's a black tie thing. The commandant comes down. It's a huge awards program. It takes place in the spring. It's really great. The foundation also does a lot of grants and scholarships for young history students um, and musicians and historians at institutions like colleges. And another really cool thing that, th that we do, that the foundation does, is um, supports this thing called a teacher in residence program for the museum. Right. And that is designed to lead programs for kids K through 12 um, in order to allow these kids to develop an appreciation for history all right, and to promulgate the ideas of leading an honorable life and committing to something that's bigger than themselves and you know, moral courage, decision-making, all of those great things that we're so good at and gives them exposure to all of those great traits um, that we hold dear as, as Marines. So there's a lot more to it than just the museum. It's all of those programs as, as well. You hit on before the museum. So the museum's back open, by the way. So it opened back up on um, May 17th. I think they're probably under some restricted like mask things again right now, but right. it's all open. So when you go there, you know, there's Tun Tavern, which if you have time and you go to the museum, like go upstairs to Tun Tavern because it's kind of fun. There's a, there's a great – it's decorated in the colonial era of the tavern or what you would imagine the tavern would look like. And uh, there's a great um, painting up there that depicts all the famous Marines from the Marine Corps uh, from its founding to its present day. And if you ask the bartender to explain the picture to you, he'll get out there and do a big thing. It's, it's pretty cool. They have this awesome Medal of Honor theater there where we just had um, a new signature film launch called We the Marines. I think you can actually see it on YouTube, but it's a huge IMAX theater. And we had, uh, you know, Gene Hackman was a former Marine, so he narrated the whole thing. And it really showcases the Marines' journey from boot camp to training to deployment and homecoming. And it's a little bit of a tearjerker too. So uh, it's, it's uh, pretty I, good. You know, of course, just so you know, I can attest to that, right? Um, right. Yeah, I can attest to that. The um Yeah, if if you're I think if you've been a Marine <laughs> right, make sure you have your hand close to your uh close to your nose so you can like you can wipe you know, if yep. you have if you have an allergic reaction like I often do, right? No matter what the pollen count is, my allergies get bad sometimes. Yeah, I get um, stuff in my eyes all the time. You know? So <laughs> exactly. you, oh. no, nah, but um, I think I saw it right after it came out, and uh, and it's uh, no, it's 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 fantastic. Like it's again, um, my kids, there's things that um, my kids won't go to with me 
And one of them is a used bookstore, right? Another one is the National Museum of the Marine Corps. Because, I mean, it's like, no, he loses his mind in places like this. You don't understand him. He will go there in the morning. He will stay there all day. He will read everything. He will then begin to make lists <laughs> and stuff. Um, so if you love this stuff, um, and again, I, so for me, and it even impacts the post-traumatic winning stuff that I do, because all of it comes out of the, this, cult, this incredible culture of Marines. And what I love about this celebration of this culture is they are plain-spoken, tough, right, flawed, human beings and the museum tells that story and and so the beauty of the marine corps is not in its pristine nature it's in its relentless pursuit of whatever gets put in front of it and all the people that make that possible and it tells those stories and and, and right now I'm, I'm i'm looking at a picture of of the painting of Gunnery Sergeant Fred Stockman that hangs in the museum. I just I was kind of looking for it on my phone. And uh, it's a picture of him with his World War One helmet on. And uh, I believe he has blood running down his face. Um, and so I don't know what this is, if this is a, a, a picture made from some, a painting made from something else. But you get a chance to meet people like this and read their stories and, and, and read... You know, and all these people. And, and then the other thing that I've learned, right, is the Marine Corps has always been a haven for um, people that have come from difficult circumstances. And by that, I, I don't mean troublemakers. What I mean is not all of us grow up in homes that are conducive to academics and nurturing. There's a fair amount of the population that doesn't. And they're looking for a way out. And so the Marine Corps, like the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, have always been a conduit, you know, a way out, and really a, 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 a path of upward social mobility, you know, for people that are in these circumstances. But the, 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 the person that historically has gravitated to the Marine Corps is a little bit different cat, <laughs> right? It's right. a little bit different kitten, okay? And they're different. And their stories are unbelievable. And one of the great books that I've read about the personality of an organization is called um, The Lions of Iwo Jima, I think, written by Major General Fred Haynes. Um, And in his writing about the 28th Marine Regiment that will own Mount Suribachi, that will fight up there. In fact, Dave Severance, uh, I think the last survivor of that company, which is, I think, uh, Echo Company, uh, 2nd Battalion, 28th Marines. Um, and I might be, I'm, I'm saying that off the top of my head, so I might not be correct about that. But Dave Severance just passed away last week. Oh, and wow. Yeah. And so, but he writes about the the personality of, this regiment that gets composed of guys from the 1st Marine Division, paramarines, Marine Raiders, is about 50% of the regiment, and then the rest is new guys. And uh, John Bazalone, part of the regiment. And so, 
you know, you he writes these stories, and they they and the the reason he chooses the lions of Iwo Jima, they have a lion as a mascot. One of the corpsmen buys it at a, a zoo in Los Angeles for as a present for his kid. Um, he he brings it home, and his wife says, "Get that out of here." So he's stationed with the First Marine Division at Pendleton. So he ta- of course he takes it to work, and they keep it at Pendleton. Well, now they're going to deploy to Hawaii, and he's now part of the 28th Marine Regiment. So he brings they bring the lion with them to Hawaii, and so on a daily basis in Hawaii. Uh, they do the the duty company, the duty platoon, which is the guard platoon, has to mm-hmm. do a parade through Hilo. Well, who do you think leads the parade? The lion leads the parade on a leash, and <laughs> you right, and you're seeing pictures of it going. You got to be kidding me, right? And then there's a picture of a first sergeant using the lion's tail to swirl the shaving cream in his cup as he's applying it to his face, and you're just like. Holy shit, the colonel, the commanding officer, Colonel Liversidge, they they are out in Honolulu, right? The officers of the regiment on an you know, officer event in their alphas. Liversidge gets pissed because the slot machine that he's playing isn't delivering any money, and he, he's a big man, right? He picks it up and he throws it through the window of the bar. They hear this huge crash and thud. Everybody goes running in there. What, like, what happened? And here's your regiment Medical Commander standing there saying, nothing. <laughs> right? But yeah. it's this incredible story that, and this is what the, the museum does. It gives life to Gunnery Sergeant Fred Stockman. Right? It tells his story. And it's all these stories that come from all these communities from all over our country that are very, very unique DNA and write this incredible legacy, you know, from Tun Tavern, right, through Bella Woods, through the Chosen Reservoir, up the slopes of Suribachi, right, um, to Quezon, to Ramadi, Fallujah, the Helmand Province, and all the other places that Marines have served with distinction. And then the story of uh, what we do here in peacetime. So if you love stories, if you love used bookstores, if you love... You know, especially the culture of Marines, which is pretty colorful. Uh, this museum, like, you can spend days there. Absolute yeah. days there. You really can. And wait until what they you, open do you up have a new... Do you have a favorite part there? And then we'll talk about the new stuff. Do you have a favorite part of the museum right now as it exists? I, I do. Um, it will not blow your mind. It <laughs> is the Leatherneck Gallery when you stand up there and you look at the quotes around the wall, the top, the very top part where the walkway is. And that Corsair and that Harrier are hanging over your head. And when I stand there and I look at all of that, it's just breathtaking. It's I, I do love the walking off the back of the 46 in the Vietnam yeah. exhibit, right, because it's hot and humid in there and you kind of get an, you get a little bit of an idea. Um. I, I, I love the uh, the Korean War part of it too because it's got the air conditioning down real low. Like they really do a great job of that. Right. But my favorite part is the Leatherneck Gallery, just right there in the beginning. I, I just every time I walk in there, I think to myself, this this is a place. Everybody, every Marine needs to make a pilgrimage <laughs> to to the Marine Corps Museum because what it does is. It gives you that sense of this 
institution, this organization that you, it's really hard to describe to somebody else who isn't a Marine, why it's so special, why we're so unique, why this unique organization that takes hundreds of thousands of unique individuals and turns them into a team of people who have all self-selected to be part of something bigger than themselves. And it's that thing where like, oh, it's a Marine thing you just wouldn't understand. But when you go to the museum, you can sort of understand it better. And I love that about the museum. And I also love the fact that it's done really well. I think the thing that's going to make the museum even better is when this final phase is done that takes us from Vietnam through the current wars now. That's what everybody's waiting for, right? And yeah, I, I don't want to see the the final phase take so long that this generation is showing it to their grandkids when it finally opens, right? Like we got to get this thing open. So what is the time? What is the timeline for it? Yeah, so unfortunately, it's you know it's pushed off a couple years. There's a lot of reasons for that. So the actual area has been constructed and they are putting in a lot of the static displays right now right but unfortunately but let me be the let me be the whiner but that's been going on for a while yeah i know so this goes back to the public private partnership so then the marine corps has to to build this and if you remember a couple years ago when that hurricane came through camp lejeune right and um you know, wiped out a bunch of barracks and everything. There was a reallocation of Marine Corps funds that had to go down there and fix some things. That was that postponed the investment that needed to be made to to create the exhibits. Got it was it. a little bit of a setback there. It's also a function of just the bureaucracy of bidding things out to have things done. Right. So if you're going to install something, if you're going to build something, if you're going to build, you've got to bid that out to contractors, and that's just if the if the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation was, we just stroke a check and hire whoever we want to. So there's a little bit of this slowdown because it is a partnership in building it. The right now, the um, there's an M60 tank going over the berm in Desert Storm, and that um, that's been in place. The F-18 that flew cap over DC on 9/11, which has a very interesting story. That that airplane has an extremely interesting story. I don't know if it will be told in the museum, but I'll tell it to you sometime. Um, artillery pieces, LAVs, they have built a complete replica of a block in Fallujah. And the interesting part about that, and that's all constructed. So now they're just – they're constructing everything. And then the next phase of this is going to be they actually have to put in all the lighting and the sound systems, all that stuff. Just There's a lot to it. Right. And – you can't start putting in the AV stuff until the walls are created and the electricity is in and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it is it is time-consuming. But this – I've been back there. And if you ask somebody really nicely like a docent when you go there, they'll open the door and show it to you. But the, the block – the city block of Fallujah has some people who have seen it. It's evoked such serious you know emotion that we're in the purpose of re, – of, uh, repurposing a bathroom into sort of like a place where somebody can go if they get upset or if they get all, you know, they just need to cool off somewhere. And that's how powerful these exhibits are just in their raw, like construction. They're not even done yet. They're just very powerful. Um, it's going to be two years until it's open to the public for full, um, you know, tours and things like that, but they're making a lot of progress on it. Um, 
it's unfortunate that it got derailed a little bit by some funding that uh, had to be sent somewhere else. No, and let me tell you, it it makes sense um, because I think everybody's assumption is it's being built in this, you know, public-private partnership by private money, and I don't get what's taken so long, right? So once you understand how the funding's happening, um, it makes more sense. It makes more sense. So, so the um, let's uh, let's talk about you as a podcaster. Sure. Um, yeah. Thanks. So, no. Uh, first of all, uh, you run your own business, right? You're on the the board of the uh, Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. So, um, so, and I'm sure you you have a, a busy life. Um, podcasting. How does that become part of your life? Um, where's the interest come from? Yeah, so I, I, I became a consumer of podcasting because not that you would believe this if you saw me with my shirt off, but I exercise, right? So if I get on the Peloton and I can't stand listening to these instructors, I'll throw on a podcast and listen to something. And I just, I, just decide, I just really loved the medium as a way to hear stories or anything like that. Um, so I started out with an interest in that. But then the next phase of this idea came from – just sitting around with a bunch of my buddies from my lieutenant days and we were all telling stories like we all do. And I made the comment that, you know, this is, we all have these fantastic stories that are really just vignettes of leadership, leadership done well, leadership gone wrong, leadership. That's just a funny story and reinforces what we know about leadership. And I floated the idea of us all writing a chapter in a book with the intent of it being mandatory reading for lieutenants at TBS. Like that was the grand plan. Well, of course, none of my lazy friends wanted to do that. And it sounded like a great idea and we were all drunk, but when everybody sobered up, nobody wanted to do it. And I thought to myself, well, I love this podcasting medium. What if I just started interviewing people, friends, and getting them to tell the stories about those crystallizing moments that they had in their time in the military those moments in leadership that are almost little vignettes, but told in a way as if you're sitting around drinking beers in a fire pit that are really easily consumable as a, as a way to share these stories before they just die with people who may actually benefit from hearing them. So it, I started just sketching the idea out of my head and then I ended up being a, a guest on a podcast called Former Action Guys. And just it's uh, hosted by Justin Kramer. It's a great podcast. He just interviews guys and they just tell their stories. And I ended up on there one day and and started talking to him about it. And he he kind of encouraged me, kind of pushed me over the edge, told me about the technology and how easy it was. And uh, I called up my friend Matt Cooper and I said, "I need my first guest. You're a friend of mine. I feel like you know you'd be willing to help me figure this out. Will you be my first guest?" And he did. And then I, I recorded it. I got such great feedback. I just started asking more and more people. And uh, I've spent the past six months just interviewing people and learning the technology and trying to do my best with some editing and things like that. And I finally found a, a great tempo with that. And now I just like sitting around and getting people to tell me the stories in the context of, hey, what did you learn in the first five years of your career that were really instrumental to your leadership style in the last five years of your career? And 
I have now uh, interviewed so, uh, an army general. I have a um, active duty three-star vice admiral that he's the senior SWO in the Navy right now. He's coming on in a week or two. And I just, I, I really sorted, I really kind of liked talking to everybody about their stories and getting it down into a medium that people can listen to and consume and learn something from. That's where it is right now. It's called Moments in Leadership. You know, you can find it on all the podcast players. And uh, I've been having a lot of fun with it. What do you enjoy about it the most? I think just talking and meeting with people um, and and getting them to tell stories that maybe nobody's ever asked them to tell before. Um, like I really enjoyed back to my friend Matt Cooper. Um, Matt was in the Oklahoma City building when it blew up as a Marine recruiter and was uh, he uh, he got the Navy Marine Corps Medal for um, saving a bunch of lives and he had never told that story before about that day in the in the Murrah building. And he told it on my podcast. And I thought, geez, this, people, people want to tell their stories. People want to share their experiences. And maybe we just don't do a good enough job of asking people to do it. I and would, not that, many people that, are writing books. That's, so. my, that's my experience is that um, you know, everybody says, well, they won't talk about it. And my, what I know to be true is most of them are dying to talk about it. Most of them are dying to talk about it. Um, but you got to provide a a a, a, a a safe space, and they've got to feel confident that um, their story is going to be their story, not your spin on their story. Right. And it's got to stand alone. And and uh, and if and if you do that, uh, my experience is uh, they do genuinely want to to have their story told, and um, and and more than have their story told, they want to talk about an event that was so. Um, significant in their lives because most of the time as they articulate their story it's not about them because that's the kind of people that I, I think that I'm certain that I know I gravitate to when they tell their story they are a marginal player in the story it is all these other people that did selfless heroic courageous things that day Mm-hmm. that have moved them and left this 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 mark on their lives and that's what they want to talk about their own role right. in it um i think what you'll find is that you will see that that is continually minimized uh throughout continually yeah and i think minimized. people have a natural tendency not to want to be seen as bragging right. or boasting about themselves but if you're going to talk about your career and the things that were meaningful and the stories that you have, you're not just going to launch into, let me tell you a story unless somebody asks you. And so if you're, if you're a general officer, how many people are coming up to you and saying, tell me about Lieutenant Smith before he was general Smith. But I just don't know how many people come up to general officers and have candid conversations with them. So I'm discovering that if you just ask people to share their stories and their experiences, they're happy to because now you're asking so they don't have to feel like they're bragging out of the blue and they've got a medium for actually sharing some stories that they think are important that, geez, how many people walk up to, you know, I'll make an example. How many people walk up to general Berger and say like, Hey, sir, what were you like as a Lieutenant? Tell me about, tell me about Lieutenant Berger. 
I, I just don't think people <laughs> they're probably scared to death to ask a question like that. Yeah. But he's probably got great stories, right? Just yeah, like no, any of nobody, any of the retired nobody's, leaders. Nobody's asking that, right? But um, they should. That's what I'm trying to do, which right. is how much leadership dies. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not the right way to say it. How many leadership lessons are lost by career Marines who've served 30 or 40 years and then just never tell their story and everything they learned over 30 and 40 years is just institutionally gone. And now you're a second lieutenant, right, sitting down at the basic school and all of these lessons that some fantastic leader has learned over 30 or 40 years is not told to them. So what are they doing? They're reading the soldier's load or whatever, whatever they're reading down there these days, you know. Um, or well, maybe like General Mattis who actually wrote a book. I mean there, there, are, there are leaders out there who have written books, fantastic things, but just not enough of them. The um, – no, you're right about that. And the amazing piece of that um, is that how much – how how many people now listen to the whole podcast thing and um and then the impact of those and and what i love about about the medium and doing it is is their stories of flawed people they mm-hmm. will tell you the mistakes they made they don't um, they don't attempt to sugarcoat it or make themselves make themselves appear more than they are. They tell you the truth about them, and sometimes it's it's not always, you know, the rosiest, most beautiful picture around. And so, to me, the idea of flawed people doing incredible things, right? But what resonates with people is their flawed nature. Right. And right. it's not really the way we think about it. And so to me, when you allow them to tell their story, they include, right, all those things in the story because that's what's important. And it's um, no. And, and that's what resonates with people, because it's not the, you know, Burke Davis, Chesty Puller book. That's not what this is. Um, this is a different version of that. And, right. and and so and again, not that there's anything wrong with you know Burke Davis's you know depiction of Chesty Puller, but I think the the real story is so much more compelling. The one that it includes is. the flaws, at least it it is to me. You know, it is to me, and that's what I think. When you allow people to tell their story with their own voice, they they make sure they include the flaws. They do, and and there's I I discovered that too because. One of my interviews was with Mel Spies, and he tells the story about when he was at Force Recon, and he was at the pool one day, and he took his blouse off, and he made it – I think when he was the commanding officer of Force Recon, he made it a point of not wearing his dive bubble and his jump wings because he was trying to de-emphasize, hey, you know, let's not – we're not this special place. We're a unit like everything else, and, and he was trying to de-emphasize some of this – mystique and kind of right. you know the force recon community right and when he got done swimming laps he came back over to put his blouse back on 
and there was a scuba bubble and jump wings on his blouse. Somebody had put them on there and it pissed him off. So he went to the sergeant major and said, you know, it, it, listen to the podcast episode and you'll hear the story and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it a little bit. But basically he went to a sergeant major and said, why would somebody be so disrespectful, a commanding officer, to do something like this, whatever? And the sergeant major looked at him and said, because when you take them off, you're telling them that you don't want to be a part of the community and it's it's not being interpreted the same way you want it to be interpreted. He's like, I learned such a huge lesson with that. So when, when somebody tells a really personal lesson, a personal story about something that they learned, about something really small, like wearing your scuba bubble, it's incredible. I, I just, the, my newest episode is with uh, Lieutenant General Mark Berlacus, who's a retired artillery general. Right. And he tells a story about how he got a non-putative letter of caution in combat for negligent discharge. I mean, a lieutenant with a nip lock for an ND in combat and you become a three-star general. There's just – there's a lot of lessons to be learned about making mistakes, how to recover from them. And these people are all superhuman. And when they when they share the stories about their difficult things, I just find it really inspiring. And it should be really inspiring for young leaders as well. It's also a great example of like, oh, shit, I'll never do that because there's a lot of those stories too. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, so much of your Marine Corps career is defined by who's standing there when you screw it up. Right. And that person's ability, I mean, because a nip lock for um, a nip lock for a negligent discharge, whoever did that was a pretty confident leader who did that. Because if that leader says, yeah, you know, General so-and-so, if I don't smoke, this guy is not going to be happy with me. Sorry, son, you're done. Right? General mm-hmm. Balakis is not General Balakis, right? Right. Doesn't happen. Right. And so yeah. um, so it's interesting, the zero kind of defect mentality uh, for, anyway, as leaders. And you, and you hear guys tell their stories. Were it not for that guy, I don't have a career. I have a friend who, right. who, missed yeah. movement, who missed movement as a lieutenant. In Spain, yeah. you know, they're out. And by the time they get back to the ship... Because the train gets canceled and something else, the ship's gone. Right. Right. And, I, and this is one of the reoccurring <laughs> themes I'm starting to see. We don't do that. Little, go ahead. No, we don't do that, right? No, we don't. I mean, but one of the things I'm seeing start to materialize is this whole thing about mistakes in the military. And what I've heard a couple of them say in, in different language, but it's it sounds something similar to this, which is there are mistakes of omission and commission, right? And there are mistakes that people make because – they just made the wrong decision or they didn't have all the information or, or they just didn't choose wisely. And then there are those who makes the mistakes of like already knowing the outcome of making a bad decision, like directly violating a regulation, directly acting in the opposite of the commander's intent, like those, those really dumb decisions. And I think what I'm starting to learn is that one of the leadership traits that we as an organization, and when I say we as an organization, I don't mean just the, the military, the Marine Corps. I mean the military. We have got to get better at assessing mistakes and asking ourselves a question. Is this the kind of mistake that was made that could actually create a better leader down the road? Or is this a mistake that is rooted in flawed character? And I'll just make up an example. Artillery community. If you have a section chief, a section chief, somebody who's in charge of the, the howitzer, 
and puts in the wrong charge and the artillery shell goes where it's not supposed to and you're shooting out like generally a battalion a battery commander can be relieved for that even though he had nothing to do with it right so i would argue this if you have a section chief who shot out because of a charge error and you properly counseled and disciplined him but he remained on in the artillery community do you think he has the lowest probability of ever having a charge error ever again if he's in charge of a gun? I think the answer is he's probably the number – he's probably the best person to be a section chief going forward because he had this mistake. Nobody got killed or things like that. But I just think that, that I'm starting to discover that one of the leadership traits that we need to be focusing on is sussing out the mistakes that people make. And looking at them and saying, could this actually create a better leader in the future and doing a better job of filtering those mistakes rather than just this institutional programming of hammer, 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 hammer the person. Well, and I think there's there was, there was an article for the written, grace of God walk I, you know, well, there was an article written within the last month. I know that talked about, you know, the great American leaders, army and Navy um, from World War Two mm-hmm. and that virtually none of them would have survived their own mistakes in the present day that they I were I read that yeah they talk about Halsey and right Halsey, and, well, yeah. you know Patton I mean all right. these guys uh who who made mistakes and what they they were relieved and replaced right they went to a staff someplace and then they were reassigned they got their you know their asses chewed for what they did and they were reassigned because of their their value and one mm-hmm. mistake, and, and there was a, and again, you're talking about an, an era where who knew that? You know, more than likely it did not get written up in the newspaper, but they knew it. And they knew they had to act, and they did, but they also rehabilitated them. And they put them back to work. And they went right. on to do the, not only great things, but historic things. And so, much to be said. But but it's interesting, linking it back to the podcast, that that. All that comes out, the drippings of what it is to be a leader, the nuances of what it is to be a leader. And, I mean, some of the things I've seen as I've gone around and spoken about uh, about life, about post-traumatic winning, um, are amazing. You know, and, and when a general stands up in front of, uh, and this is General Furness, he stands up in front of, you know, 1300 marines in in the theater the base theater at camp lejeune and, and he, you know he's introducing it and then he says because every time it's given when he was a cg he would stay and watch it i think he's seen it like 24 times right he could he could recite it right um but he stands up and introduces it and then he closes it and he tells them uh, he starts talking about he's doing the introduction and i remember the first time he did it i was like what but he he says but let me tell you about me so he went off the script, right? And he talked about what it was like to lose 100 Marines uh, in under his command in combat, and I want to say four different combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And that he called every family. He said, that's not part of the casualty notification process, but I thought it was my moral obligation that the guy who issued the orders to send their sons uh, into harm's way and ultimately to their deaths, um, that I call them. And then he says, but that's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And then he begins to discuss the day he finds out that his four-year-old daughter, who's now in her 20s, her name is Elizabeth, she's a beautiful girl, 
um, um, had a thing called Fragile X Syndrome, which is a developmental disability, right? Which is mental retardation. And he can't tell the story without his voice cracking. And the impact on that of, of him as a leader, right? Of the impact on that as a, uh, as a compassionate human being. And I'm sitting there watching the Marines in the audience who don't believe, who don't think he has a problem in the world, right? What problem can a general officer have? None, right? They've got it licked. And then they tell the truth about their story. And that's, and again, so if you, you want a horizontal theme through the whole podcast, the museum is this storytelling, right, right. E- event at a location and now traveling. The podcast becomes, and what I love about mine in long format like this, is the ability to discuss nuance and things like that that you can't do in a five or ten minute discussion. Right. And then the educational benefits that come out of it when you can listen to somebody, right, talk about the events of their life like this. And I'll get an email. I mean, and it happens to me on a weekly basis. I listen to your you know, on discipline series. I listen to your battlefield studies series. Oh my God. Listening to general Van Riper talk about his time as a company commander in Mike company three, seven in Vietnam and why he became adamant about the discipline that he would become adamant about in his life because of the hard learned lessons of his company in Vietnam where he has over a hundred percent casualties over the course of 12 months of fighting. He said, blew me away. And so, but you can again, um, this history is so vibrant and rich um, and amazing that I, I think there, you can't tell it often enough and you can't tell it in the depth. And hopefully the, the impact of all that is, is, is leaders who understand their craft more and who are more willing to, to be the kind of leaders that we need uh, in the American military and have always needed. And so uh, you contribute to that discourse. So who's? what's the next thing you're going to – first of all, what, so you said it's called what? It's called Moments in Leadership. Moments in Leadership. And they can find yeah. it on you know, every, every player. So, so just uh, put uh, it Apple. in. Yeah. Got you it. Can, um, you can know, Apple, Spotify, all of that. Okay. Um, I'm well, also pretty um, active on Instagram. And I have a Facebook page. So if people are listening, our social media people, you can find moments in leadership there too. Um, it's yeah, I uh, I love the tie back to the museum because you're right. It's about it's about stories. I think if if I had the balls to shake my finger in the face of a general officer and say, you have a responsibility to tell your stories because you are a successful leader and if you don't tell them no one will be able to learn from anything you did in f- over 30 or 40 years when you're out and you have a responsibility to pass those leadership lessons along to people and so I'm I'm providing that forum for people to tell their stories and and hopefully a listener will hear it and say like wow that really makes a lot of sense to me. I am going to consider that or implement that or understand that better. Um, but yeah, so I, I have a couple of um, commitments from people coming up. Um, I've got Vice Admiral Ron Boxel, uh, who's coming on next. 
he's going to be great because he's the senior SWO in the Navy. So I, I'm really fascinated to hear about leadership in the Navy, especially at the junior ranks, because I think Navy leadership is different than Marine Corps leadership. You know, you're out at sea and there's, it's just a whole different environment. Well, and let me tell you, there's no more, if you want to talk about the lightning rod, um, I know. For, we're going to talk about it. Yeah. For the present day state of the DOD, you know, the first place you need to talk about the first service is the Navy. And the first part of the Navy that you need to talk about is um, the part of the Navy that will bear the brunt of the of the fight against the Chinese. And that is going to be the American Navy and the, the, specifically the American Surface Navy. And when you if you and, and I'm getting ready to do a bit of an in-depth, uh, I would call it deep dive on, you know, if you look back in what the last 20 years, you have the fat Leonard thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. You have, you know, that going on. You have then these series of collisions. Right. That that we've seen. Right. You've seen the special operations problems that the SEALs have had. It's seemingly wherever they go. Right. With constant protestation of this is not a culture. We don't have a cultural problem. Right. And Mm -hmm. then then you see. um what happens with the 15th Mew, the USS Somerset that is supposed to, you know, control the AAV movements from the ship to the shore and then back. That investigation is going to, I would say, be completed, the Navy part, within the next 60 to 90 days. That's going to come out on the heels of not only the Bonhomme Richard burning Pierside, but that a, a Navy, you know, a sailor, started the uh started the fire and then there's just reports circulating last week that they I don't know how to characterize this so I want to be careful that the failure to fight the fire was the result of leaders taking counsel of their fears I've heard the same thing about that we yeah, can't do week. that and and I'll leave it at that but I mean and so that's going that investigation's going to come right the somerset is going to come on the heels of the arson thing and and it's just like make it stop already and how how do you turn this organization around and so i'm make sure you let me know because i i i'm looking forward to listening to it yeah i, I uh one of the things i tell my guests is that i'm not I'm not interested in debating current events or right. getting into right. the, you know, the, the what's going on, what's not going on. I want to give everybody a venue to talk about, like, what did they learn about that could be listened to and heard by the next generation of Navy leaders, because that next generation of Navy leaders is going to have to fix this problem. Because since World War II, uh, OK, I'm just going to say the past 30 years, the Navy has been talking about everything except fighting. So if the Navy is going to be part of the forefront of any sort of peer conflict in the future, do they have the kind of leaders today that are the Ernest Evanses of the Battle of Samar and those four other – those three other destroyer captains who basically took their destroyers on a suicide mission against the Japanese in order to save the the, uh, light carriers? Do those leaders exist in the Navy? Are there leaders who are going to say, I am going to take my ship and my crew 
on a suicide mission. Well, no, I, and, I and, hope and there are, but no, well, the answer it's is no. Fifty years since we've had to do it, right? No, the, well, the answer I think is no because I, again, this is just something I read. I can't remember, um, and it might have been in USNI News, and that is that look, war fighting is not a critical skill anymore, right? Being a, up to snuff relative to racial diversity training, sexual assault training, that will get you fired. Having a ship that's just not operating up to snuff, you'll survive that. Right. It's not a priority in today's Navy. And again, these are all articles that are coming from naval officers and articles about things that have been written. And it's it's that discussion. And so so all of this discussion never takes place in in front of the backdrop of, operational excellence diversity that contributes to operational excellence that's not the discussion operational excellence is rarely mentioned in it and and i think the significance of the discussion that you'll have right um about the navy is that let me tell you the marine corps the army and the air force are on that same path where all these other things are more important than operational excellence when you stack up the investigation of the kc-130j and the F-18 mm-hmm. off the coast of Japan, when you put that next to the 15th Mew investigation, when you can put that next to another, you know, clipping of an F-18 and a KC-130J uh, a couple years earlier, the sinking of another AV off the East Coast, right? When you put these things together, what do you see? You see organizational lack of discipline and fidelity to their own standards of leaders. And it's this disturbing trend. And yeah. so I will be – please let me know when you, once you I put will. it up because I'd, I'd love to, to listen it. to it. Yeah, and I've told him in my interview prep, like I, I want to ask him specifically, where is the next you know, Ernest Evans coming from in the Navy? Do they exist? And the one thing that makes me question any answer to that is well, – I don't remember the, all the details, but there was that incident in the Persian Gulf where the Navy patrol boat was taking and, and all the sailors were captured by the uranium – let me tell you something, Mike. Captain Dave Armstrong is in charge of that patrol boat. One of two things is happening. Either every single Marine on that thing has died in a blaze of glory, fucking shooting every single thing on that boat they've got, or I'm coming back and telling stories about how I just cut down a whole bunch of Iranians who tried to take my boat from me. That's it, right? How – what uh, was it, 12 again, 14 we... sailors get taken captive? Yeah. I, no, the stories are – and then, you know, the other things in the Persian Gulf. When is – and it happened for the first time. I want to say the Coast Guard did it uh, within the last 60 days. But fired on Iranian boats that are that have 12.7 machine guns on the bow, right, driving an attack profile to your ship. You have the inherent, not right, but obligation to defend your ship. Mm-hmm. What's it going to take for them to cut loose one of those 12.7s and kill people on your ship for you to defend yourself? We don't want to have an incident because I might get in trouble. What do you mean? Yeah. You're a warship. Act like one. And so to me, it's – it's. but again, the significance is that that culture, that the Navy's movement down this path, the Marine Corps, the Army, and the Air Force are, are, are headed down the same path, right? And, and we're talking – there's just an article that I saw the other day talking about the lowering of physical standards – Right at, at officer candidate school and at the basic school, things that we've always held in very very high regard, 
You know, that the leaders of the Marine Corps, they're going to be fit, they're going to be capable, they're going to be up to do this stuff. And now they're simply, you know, uh, things I've read. You know, the uh, the confidence course is not a graded event anymore. The the endurance course, which was, I think, the obstacle course and then a run, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a graded event anymore. So what do you mean? You can fail all of this and still stand in front of the Marines as leaders? Well, yeah. Well, not only that, but why do we need those leaders? I mean, if the Marine Corps is getting smaller and the Marine Corps has no trouble bringing in Marine officers, I, I don't think there's a pipeline problem of people going to OCS, right? Like, I don't think we're giving out bonuses to get people to go to OCS. I think we have more people that want to go to OCS that are qual- than are qualified. So why would we be lowering those standards? Wouldn't we be raising them if we have – if we have a supply and demand imbalance, wouldn't you create the supply? Wouldn't you fix the supply by of that by increasing physical standards? And and I'll tell you this: I didn't go to IOC when I was lieutenant, and I have never been down there the way it's run now. But I know now it's much harder than probably when my peer groups went. I mean, all these physical tests that you've got, like the first day you've got to pass that test, or you're recycled. I mean, I think that some of some of the Marine Corps has gotten harder, and I'm glad for that. But gosh, if we're and I don't know anything. Yeah, about the I, I think that it, yes, I, but I'm disappointed to hear that. I think if you examined it now, that those things have gone away, and even those things have gotten easier. Mm-hmm. And, and again, what I love about the podcast is the chance to have uh, allow people to. Can you explain this? Because I'm not a part of it. I don't understand it. I read this. Could you provide the footnotes that make this make sense for me? Because it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, that it used to be everything at IOC was evaluated. Now you have to pass three of nine hikes. What does that mean? You can fail six hikes. You can drop out of six hikes, and you're going to still be an infantry officer? Like, could you somebody explain that to me? Because that's no, never been the way it is. No, if you hikes, go be an artillery officer. <laughs> Ride around in the trucks with the ice chest and the folding chairs, right? The lawn chair. you can't truck it, fuck it, baby. Yeah, exactly. Right. right? But so to me, but the podcast lends itself to in-depth exploration of those things that are footnoted so you can help people understand these things. And, um, and, and, and that's why I love it. So we will be listening. Dave nice. Armstrong, the podcast is called moments in leadership. Um, if you're looking for uh, Dave's company, it's called monument wealth management. And uh, if you put a dot com at the end of that and you run it all together, you will find him. And uh, first of all, Dave, I hope you, uh, don't mind coming back on because thoroughly enjoyed the conversation today. And uh, all the best of luck with the podcast and continued good luck with your work on the board of the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation because uh, uh, we're all huge fans of, of what you guys do. And thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on and letting me talk a little bit more about what's going on at the National Marine Corps Museum and what's going on with the Heritage Foundation and our final phase of that project. Uh, I promise it is coming along. And thanks for letting me talk about my podcast, too. It's a project. I have no agenda. I just I want to help new leaders learn from the experience of old leaders. Well, I'll tell you what. You can't have enough voices that, that will do articulate discourse, that will have people on, ask them hard questions, ask for the footnotes without an agenda so people can understand, so people can make better decisions and and hopefully do the right thing. And so I'd love to come back on anytime you'll have me. So tell tell the rest of your crew I said hello. All right. That is David Armstrong, former artillery officer, United States Marine Corps. More of Auburn Radio coming up next right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. 